I've always tried to do something like admission of what the world is like in the hope that whatever my voice contributes to help the world become a better place, I'm all for it. Hello and welcome to AI, also known as Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Vanillas. I'm Barbara St. Clair, your host, and today I'm here with Herb Snitzer, who is a world-famous photographer, got a lot of his chops shooting jazz musicians in the 50s and 60s. His photographs, they're startling in their use of light, black and white photographs, and their ability to capture a moment like nobody else can. Herb, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Nice to be here. I come out of the Philadelphia area and moved to New York as soon as I finished college. The very next day, I started my career in New York as a photojournalist, meeting people, very well-known folks sometimes. I photographed for the New York Times and the Herald Tribune and had a major break in 1959. This was only a couple of years after I moved to New York that I had a one-man show at the Museum of the City of New York, which was startling. But I was befriended by Edward Steichen's right-hand lady, Grace Mayer, who just took to me and to my work. Mm -hmm. She herself Mm -hmm. had the essence of being New York. So what do you think she saw in your photographs? I would presume it would be potential. She saw something, something strong, where I'd like to think that's Mm -hmm. what she saw. It's hard to know. Looking back on it, what would you say your strengths were at that time? Determination. Mm -hmm. I moved to New York determined to become a Life magazine photographer, which I did five years later. That was my major goal. The secondary goal was to document my life through pictures so that the pictures that I made were just that. They, they were expressions of my everyday life living in this great city of New York. I saw myself as a photojournalist, and I went around to magazines, and because in those days, photojournalism was the way of expressing. Life magazine was just a magazine of photojournalism. So, and I loved that, being able to live and work within a group of men and women who were very talented and saw me, I guess, going in that direction. And uh, and I hitched a ride. It's been riding ever since. I'm looking at your website, and there's everybody who was a leading jazz musician of the time. Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, John Coltrane, Miles Davis, Nina Simone, Thelonious Monk, Lester Young, Art Blakey, and I've only gotten through the bees. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was quite a quite a run. And you said it, and you actually had a museum exhibit that talked about you being a witness. Yeah, not only was I a visual artist, but I also had another side to my work, which was more academic, more historical. I learned early on that I wasn't just making photographs for now, but my now photographs will become history. And that era, i.e. what we're living through now, will be a hundred years from now, will be just that, it'll be historical. And so what comes out of this era are 
artists willing to devote their time to make sure that life is known. When I was looking at the photographs, there were some that I said to myself, yes, that's very clearly a witness photograph. It's in the notion of witness being somebody who is there, but not necessarily involved and not necessarily making things happen. But when I looked at some of your photographs, they were so intimate and they were so deeply storytelling. Well, I, I loved those folks that I was photographing. I love jazz musicians. Mm -hmm. And I fell under the spell of Nina Simone to begin with when I did her first two album covers. Mm -hmm. We were the same age. We had the same interests. Mm -hmm. We had the same jokes. Mm -hmm. And uh, she became a uh, lifelong friend. She was crazy at the end of her life, but uh, who's to say we aren't? Photo she was wonderful. Here's a photograph that you did of her in the mirror. Right. And you've captured it, in, in, in it's, you see two versions of her. You see a, a side portrait and a straightforward portrait. Yeah, and they seem like almost two different people, and in some ways she was. It's a world of conflict and strength and determination and struggle, especially if you lived in New York or L.A. with the drug laws that were present and how the authorities placed these laws primarily against black artists. So every time I made a photograph, that was always in my mind that this is part and parcel of a, a people's struggle. It wasn't just good times because my photograph of Louis Armstrong, I mean, there's no more tired Louis than that one. What did you want the world to know about Louis Armstrong in that, that picture, which is iconic? I want them to ask questions. I mean, he's wearing a, a Star David. I mean, that's a whole backstory by itself. I mean, why is he doing that? What's his reason for it? And so, of course, as a photograph, it doesn't explain that, right? No, the photograph explains the struggle. And then what does it mean? Well, that's like two phases of her. You know, mm -hmm. you have the struggle and then you have the happy Nina Simone. She was open and laughing and we just had a great time. There, I mean, there's been nobody else like her ever since. There's another photograph of Nina Simone where she's sitting on a stool mm -hmm. and just laughing and just, just, she was open. She was just open. You know, Nina said to me one time she could go out you know, on a stage before 5,000 people and become the queen and then I had to go home alone. 5,000 people paid serious money to come and see you. You go home alone. Wow. I'm very stuck on that Nina Simone photo of her in the mirror. That sense of duality and a lot more in that photograph than simply witnessing something. There's some deep storytelling, which I think is resonant in all your photographs. Yes, I do too. I live at a certain time, we all do, and we express that time through whatever we do. So let's go back to talking about Willis Armstrong then. I took one bus trip with him mm -hmm. and his band and learned an awful lot. He, he was not 
the joyful guy all the time and being a jazz musician in those days was very difficult. They didn't get paid very much. They encountered racism. The black musicians did. He had an integrated band all the time. He had no prejudice. Mm -hmm. I've never met anybody like him. It's just, uh, can you play? And they loved him. Musicians loved Lewis. And we did too. I mean, it was infectious. He was a really great talent. But he was also Lewis. Or we all called him Pops. It wasn't Lewis. And, and like Louis. He hated Louis, you know. Lewis was his name. Then, of course, you made an iconic photograph of Miles Davis. He's standing, I think, at a window, a doorway, looking He out. was in the doorway of a trailer. He had just finished playing. We were at Newport. He was standing in the doorway. And Herman Leonard, a very good jazz photographer of the era, was asking Miles questions. And Miles was became reflective. And here he is, his shirt open, his chest adorned with metal, gold, so the common and the sun. So everything was just right. And uh, he had this expression on his face. And I just kept my finger down on the trigger of my camera. I must have gone through 36 pictures in three seconds, that kind of thing. And out of that came a hell of a photograph yeah, of yeah. Miles. Well, it's it's interesting. I'm looking at your website, and you have three photographs of Miles Davis up. And I'm going to go back to this witness thing, because two of them really strike me as sort of photojournalism. One he's playing, another one he's walking by, and you snap it, and it tells us a story of this is what happened then. And he's standing in the doorway. seems timeless. There are times when I was not always aware of what was going on. And I, I say that in a positive way, you know, especially with that image of Miles. When I had that framed in, in the camera, something took hold. It's like there's a photographer by the name of Werner Bischoff, Swiss photographer, died much too young. But whenever I, I never met him, but when I look at pictures of him, there's a quality of, um, of transcendence in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it just uh, gives me the shivers sometimes. But with Miles, I knew, first of all, I, I hope that I can reflect my feelings about Miles into that image. I don't know. I mean, it's a scary image in a way. Big, 16, 20, 20, 24. I mean, it'd be life-size. Right, right. And then you, what I know about him makes it even more scary. Miles was very difficult, especially with women. I mean, he was just unbearable socially. As a talent, of course, something else. What I see in this picture is the person capable of creating that music. Good. 
I'll tell you one of the incidences where I was very moved and very uh, upset at the same time. I was at Carnegie Hall, 1968. I was backstage because there was a 100th anniversary of the birth of W.E.B. Du Bois, the great black intellectual. At the end of the concert, we were all backstage standing around talking with each other, and I was, there I was, there were Martin Luther King, Ossie Davis, James Baldwin, and me. And I wow. Didn't, and I didn't have a camera. Oh. So it's one of those lost moments, you know, that I can't seem to not talk about. So, And I was so surprised to see that Martin Luther King was no bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, the image, what, what, the, what it can do. But it's probably, I don't know if it's obvious or not, but you're a, you're a white man. Hanging out with jazz musicians and taking pictures of jazz musicians, and really not all of the jazz musicians were black, but many of them were. As a white man, did you get any pushback on that? Or was it just not even an issue at all? Oh, it was an issue, but not with me. Okay. If I was six foot three and 200 pounds, I would say, yeah, it might become an issue, but my size helped because I, I simply don't intimidate anybody. And, and the black artists that I got to know really well realized that I wasn't just hanging out to make pictures, but I was hanging out to hang out because I simply enjoyed being with black artists who can crack the funniest jokes going. But it was just a joy to be in that environment, in that culture. I miss it still. What do you miss about it? The spontaneity, the camaraderie, the security. And I could say that because I'm white. You're right, you know. But I never apologized for being white. Well, because it's a lot easier to get along, that's why. And when they realized that I was making some pretty good pictures, then all the, all the walls came down. That era was the beginning of the transformation of America. You know, I, I use this when I speak. I always say, um, tell me what happened on December 1, 1955. You know, most people don't know, that's when Rosa Parks was arrested. December 1, 1955. The world changed. And I mean the, the world. So some of your photographs capture really important moments during that civil rights movement? It was fortuitous. I was in New York and looking for work as a photojournalist. And I stopped into the offices of Metronome magazine. And Bill Koss was the editor. He looked at my portfolio and uh, I said, you know, I'd really like to see if I can do some work for you. And he said, well, and we talked about it back and forth. He said there in the Five Spot Cafe, Lester Young is going to play with a local pickup band. And I didn't want to show the guy my ignorance, but I didn't know Lester Young from anything. So I said, great. So uh, a couple nights later, I'm at the five spot. I'm photographing Lester. And the first initial image that I made 
has lasted all these years. Mm-hmm. When they think of the Lester Young photograph, it's he outside the five spot. That was the first image that I made of a jazz musician. And he's standing there, I think, with... He's standing there talking to this guy, and we did a research on this guy, and it turned out that this other person in the image was Hank Jones, great jazz pianist. And he was greeting Lester. And Lester, it was almost cliche, you know, he always had this pork pie hat, and he's got it there, and he's holding his saxophone. Uh, I mean, you would think that uh, it would be a picture that you'd go, okay, and then move on. But there's something in there that captures the life of that jazz musician. Yes, there is. Even when it says furbished rooms up there in the top. I mean... Yeah, yeah, it's very good storytelling. Yeah, well, that's what I always have liked to do with my work, is to have a backstory. What would be the backstory of this? My first experience. Ah, okay. That's what the... the Well, I was just... I was young, and very young. This is 1957 or 58. I had never photographed a jazz player. So that, and it yeah. happened. It just happened. And it, that way with a lot of my work, it just happened. So when you ask, what is it that's inside boiling around, I, I really, in the final analysis, don't know. What strikes me about this work is the depth of, and I'm going to use the word color, even though it's in black and white. It is so tremendously layered. There's shadows, and then there's medium tones, and then there's lighter tones, and then there's this huge sort of ethereal, you know, super-powered light coming out of that mm-hmm. window. What's happening with light and darkness? Mm-hmm. For me, there's the, there's a thematic aspect that runs through your work. Well, that's true as far as the jet. Well, it's true with the other work as well. It's all tied together. I am who I am. Uh (laughs) And one of the things that I learned quickly was when you you make a photograph and you print it, you use the whole frame. You don't just use part. You don't so-called crop, although I did a lot of that as well. But mainly, I tried to make my statement within the structure of a black and white photograph that is surrounded by darkness. That's what Henri Cartier-Bresson talked about, you know, the complete photograph, no cropping. You know, they used to say to Gene Smith, the great photojournalist of Life magazine, do you use available light? And Gene would say, I use any light that's available. I mean, there were, we we did what we had to do because, I mean, when I look back now, I, I still marvel at not just me, but lots of other photographers who were able with rudimentary equipment to make the images that they made. I mean, it's, 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 to me, it's extraordinary. I'm more than a photographer. I'm more than a writer. But there were certain things about the visual side of creativity that just grabbed me. 
I started off as a painter, but... Uh, I did not know that. I wasn't very good at it. So what kind of camera did you have back then? I had Nikon SP rangefinder, the last rangefinder that Nikon produced. No power drive, no built-in light meter. You wanted to find out what the light was, you had a light meter that... The handheld light meter. Handheld that, you know, you'd go over and put it next to your face and you get the reading. And I mean, it was labor-intensive. Yeah, yeah. And did you, by any chance, have a favorite film? I know a lot of photographers who had a favorite film speed. Well, I, I liked 400 ASA. It's speed and it's a lack of grain. Did you ever upgrade your camera? Oh, yeah. I got an N90 years later, and uh, I, I shoot Ilford film because that's the only film you can get. You still shoot film. You, you didn't switch over to digital. No. I very rarely do a commercial gig. I have one going now with Gumbi Ortiz, the great percussionist. He lives here in St. Pete. Then we'll take the film mm -hmm. and digitize it, and uh, which sharpens it. So why do you stick with film rather than just using a, a high-def digital camera? I don't know. I'm, I'm not attracted to the quality of image that is produced. Mm -hmm. There's something that just doesn't hit me right. Mm -hmm. But it could also be because that's what I learned growing up. The depth of darks, the blacks and all that, just aren't quite the same. They aren't. You're using ink. You're not using silver. Silver has a quality that flat ink doesn't. For me, I find that what you produce with film is just better. It's a better image. In digital, you know exactly what you have and exactly the moment you have it. I find the weight to be part of the process. In, in the old days, you, you, you didn't have electronics in the camera. It was all mechanical and heavy as all get out. And what you basically did was snap the shutter and then you moved the film. You mm -hmm. did it manually. Well, two things took place. One, you're looking at the camera. And, and two, your head's down. You just photographed something that was up and now your head is down which is where most of the pictures are made, rather than just snapping. Right. So it's a really different process. When I think it a, is. Yeah. I think it is. Film is, it's expensive. Uh-huh. You take the picture and there's a sort of act of faith that, you know, the shutter opened and that the film advanced and that you didn't somehow get light on it or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then you can't tell what it is until you develop it seems to me a very intimate and sort of mysterious process versus I point and I know exactly what I have and I move on to the next yeah, image. Yeah, yeah. It has that quality. The end quality is silver-driven, and that's what I love about it. I don't want to make pictures that, are, that look flat. They aren't flat, so to speak. So you have some really iconic photographs of the civil rights movement. One had to be taken in the 60s because there's a picture of John F. Kennedy. And there's someone holding a poster that says America never fails. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was in London. In London? Yeah, at Hyde Park. 
What prompted you to take that picture? Well, look at it. <laughs> I mean, anybody would be prompted to make that photograph. That's a wonderful picture, it if I do say picture. so myself. What do you like about it? <laughs> well, I like the, the happiness that is going on, the inner relationship between the lady and uh, the man on the... Uh, well, you could see him. There's just joy in that photograph. And Kennedy is still alive. Yeah, so there's a, a man standing on a sort of stage, and he's holding a big sign that says, America Never Fails. Yeah, that's that's what they did in Hyde Park on Sundays. People would get together and, and make statements. And here, this w woman who's looking at him and just, like, incredulous... <laughs> smile on her face. She's got two fingers up in the air. Everybody thinks it's a victory when it was, it's just the opposite. It's screw you. Yeah, yeah. And again, the black edge. Right. Everything is just where it needs to be. Right. That whole photograph is full from corner to corner. Yeah, it is. Edge. Yeah. You know, here is this woman, a feathered hat, white gloves in her hands. So we're looking at a picture that is called Black Power, Black Harlem, Power. 1958. So you name your own photographs, I'm presuming. You I do. Sometimes I ask my wife. All right, all right. Yeah. Did you name this one? I named that one. So, that, that goes back uh, again to the uh, late 50s, early 60s. So the name Black Power, it's, it, it looks like perhaps a woman who might have come out of church. That was a rally with Adam Clayton Powell, who was a congressman from New York. Harlem was his district. That's where it was, and that's what was going on. And, and then you have, it's called title NAACP Harlem 1958. Yeah. 11 seven, or 12? Yeah, in the yeah, 1958. He's, he's looking at you. Yes, he is. Who knows why he was so angry, you know? There's a poster of NAACP over his head, and he's there with a couple of other people. But you seem to be capturing people at a moment, both a passive and an active moment. Mm -hmm. They're reflective, but they're also active and engaged with whatever it is they're seeing. Well, again, I don't know whether he heard me. I don't know what was going on. All I know is he turns, and as he turns, I snap. And it worked because everything else, Arnold said this, he said, sometimes you're photographing and something happens, you have no idea. I mean, why did the kid turn? Everybody was looking the other way and all of a sudden he turned. And at that point, fortunately, I was still with the camera up to my eyes, roaming the, and when I saw that, I snapped. I, I don't think there's any more than one image. One frame. You came to St. Petersburg. I did. You left New York, came to St. Petersburg. No, I left New York and went up into the Adirondack Mountains for 13 years to run a school patterned after a school in England called Summerhill. It was a freedom school. And what does that mean exactly? It means that Classes were voluntary, and that the entire school was run off by the democratic process of one person, one vote. It was a boarding school, and we were evaluated time and time again by the New York State Board of Education. 
and they could never find anything wrong. And I directed that school for 13 years, completely leaving the photographic world. What made you decide to stop being a photographer and become an educator? Well, I was very, I don't know. It's one of those spontaneous things, you know. You, you meet a group of people. You, maybe I was ready for a change. Maybe I had said what I wanted to say. It's hard. I still don't know. Because at that point in my career, it was really blooming. Right. And I walked away from it. You were not in St. Petersburg very long before you got involved in creating Salt Creek Artworks. Yeah, I was one of the early people involved with Salt Creek Artworks, right. I would describe it as a building which housed a lot of studios where artists could pay a nominal fee to the owners of the building. And we were making art. And I was processing my film because I then finally had a dark room. I never saw it as an artist collective. We used to have get-togethers, but most of them were parties. Well, when I talk to artists who know about that or who were involved in that, they just get this look in their faces like, there was a certain period of time when I was in heaven. Oh yeah, I felt that, where I met my wife. If I hadn't met her, I'm not sure I would have stuck around. So how many artists and- There were 40 artists. 40. Yeah, there was a, a lot. So when did that start? The summer of 92. There weren't that many in the beginning. Lance Rogers was a painter. There were a couple uh, sculptors, Carol Dameron, painter, my wife. David Berry and... Well, David is a bookbinder. He's probably one of the best bookbinders in the country. Yasuko Nakamura? Yeah, yeah, she's a wonderful, wonderful sculptor. And Yoko Nogami, who now teaches in the public school system. And then Herb Davis, he's an African-American. If you go into the black community on one of the sides of the building, there's Louis Armstrong, as big as life, mm -hmm. you know. And that's, mm. that's Herb's mural. So it's a pretty stellar group that you had there. Yeah, I think so. I think a very talented group. You had a gallery and... We had a gallery in the front. It was a former furniture showroom. The building itself was owned by the Prince family. Azel Prince was still alive. He was about 90 years old. For who knows what reasons, decided to have an art building in a part of town that was difficult. He just loved artists. Mm -hmm. He he was in there cleaning up the place like we were, going at it with joy. And, I mean, he seemed so happy about who was going into the building, which was going to be this crazy bunch of artists. And it was just that kind of camaraderie and collegiality that was carried over once the building was all fixed up. And when we pulled up the rug... It was a big building. Underneath that rug were these tiles, green tiles. I mean, they were beautiful. So Lance and I, one weekend, I think, pulled up all the carpeting to expose these beautiful tiles so that by the time we were finished, we both looked like the color of my shirt. 
I mean, it was it's so covered with dust. dirty. Yeah. And so we really put our efforts, physical, psychological efforts, into Salt Creek, and we created a pretty good... It was just terrific. We were starting something which I thought could really take us pretty far in terms of what we were doing and how the art world would, small art world, would function. And I understand he was supportive all the way through while he was alive. All the way, all the way through. And uh, he showed me a photograph of him as a young man with Thomas Edison. I mean, that's how far back he was going. And what was he doing with Thomas Edison? He was his personal secretary. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Yeah, it was. It was illuminating and uh, exciting. St. Pete is now known as an arts community, and my sense is that Salt Creek was one of those really key forks in the road that helped St. Pete move and to become an arts community. Yeah, that's, that, that's true in a limited way, but it was in a part of town that white folks didn't go to, and uh, that was very difficult. It was wonderful times. <laughs> Lance would put on auctions so that people could come and see who the local artists are, and, and I keep fighting to tell them not to use the word local, you know. Why would you tell them not to use the word local? Because many of us weren't. Many of us were international in name, you know, and I just pleaded with people to just say St. Petersburg-based artists because Kiss of Death is local. Right. Oh, boy. I was at an art meeting, which I don't usually go to very much, and people had to introduce themselves and say something. So when I introduced myself, I asked the question, how many in this room? There were like 30 people, movers and shakers in the town. How many of you people in the last year had bought a piece of art? One hand went up. Mm. And uh, I said, well, if you want to become a big time city, you better start buying the work. I was in the military. I served 26 months in the military during the Korean War. And I was, in my college years, I was a furniture designer, <laughs> of all things. Right. And I was a, a design major, so to speak. And when I graduated, I got this job with this firm in New York called Joseph Houston Associates. Joseph Houston took a liking to me, took me under his wing. But I met my parents at the train station, and Joseph uh, came with me because he wanted to meet my parents. He saw my parents, and especially my mother. He knew that these were Jews, refugees. They were basically refugees. And uh, about a week later, I was fired. And it had nothing to do with anything other than anti-Semitism. <laughs> I mean, it was so blatant. But had he not done that... We might not have you since the photographer. That's true. That's true. One thing leads to another. I was always an artist. Even when I was 10 years old, lying in bed sick, I was drawing. So, And I was always drawn towards looking at paintings. And then I saw Albrecht Durer's Praying Hands. And for some reason, it just knocked me out. Mm. And it, it hasn't stopped. So... Artists never retire. We just die. That's 
You keep going until That's, the end. Yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. And you've been listening to Herb Snitzer and a history of the last 50, 70 years of photography. 60. 60. All right. <laughs> the last 60 years of photography coming from a really amazing artist who's lived through it and helped create the photographic language that we are used to seeing. So thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.